Okay. So continuing on this gratitude journey, I will be completely honest. I am encountering a professional frustration that you can't see me, but it's got my IRA up and my eyebrow despite getting Botox refreshed this week. But I am grateful for this frustration because it allows me to reach out to my council of elders, my mentors, the individuals that will help guide me through this to come to peace on the other side. And y'all, that's what today's episode is about. There are frustrations that we will encounter professionally. Racism, sexism, ableism, to name a few. And there is hope in this world for improvement. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Feel free to put a prayer on working through our trials so that we can uh, maybe not walk in a valley, but find you a mountaintop. (laughs) Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures, I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech Language and Hearing Association, SCISHA, 
a current Board of Trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG-13, SCISHA, the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAV, a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite Podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator. And I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. All right, everybody. I have a special episode. I know this month of September is the Erin and Karen takeover for interprofessional education for interprofessional practice, but I was so excited about our guest today that I squeezed her into the lineup. So huzzah for that. So um, today's guest, I'm hoping that you have read this article. If you haven't, I'm going to go ahead and it'll be hyperlinked into the show notes I think that's the word that we use, hyperlink. I don't know. Yumi will make me cool. But I have none other than Dr. Danny Scott, who recently wrote Pathway to Dismantling Systemic Racism in CSD. She is with the Minnesota State University. You can find her article within the ASHA Leader. And I've kind of like fangirled her for a while on like social media and then and like said hi and, you know, those kind of things through social media. And then when I saw her at Basla, I was like, Michelle, don't be awkward. But like I do, I have social anxiety. And so like I am a little awkward like a turtle and I like, you know, got my courage up and I went up and I said, hi. <laughs> so Huzzah! She said hello back, and and here she is. So, Dr. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Of course, and I thank you for, you know, speaking to me at Embossa, because I just loved your energy, and then I got to learn about this podcast. I didn't know about it before, but I think it's absolutely incredible, so I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for connecting. Thank you. Yes, and folks, this woman is she is a powerhouse in the world of DEI and and changing our profession and moving it forward. So I am like incredibly humbled to be able to hold this conversation with her. And, and this is, we're going to talk about hard things. And I am aware that some of you that are listening find this uncomfortable. Trust me, I have been there. I go there. But We have to sit in the uncomfortable to grow and move forward because our profession needs to be a reflection of the beautiful tapestry that is the world. 
So there's, there's my, there's my opener to, to go there with us. But uh, Dr. Danny, as with all things, I like to get the backstory on all of our guests. So how did you hear about the world of speech pathology and how did you get into it? And then what did you study for your PhD? I know that's like a string of questions. Yes. I love all of these things. Okay. So I'll start. I, I started as a psychology major in undergrad. So I went to Spelman College, which is a historically black college for women, the number one HBCU, BT dubs, if you didn't know. Um, and so I had a wonderful experience there. And I was a psychology major because it's a liberal arts institution. So there is no speech language pathology. I was double majoring in psychology and comparative women's studies. And so during my time there, I was like, I think I want to be a women's counselor. But then I kept really getting interested in like, education. And that's kind of, I always thought I would be a teacher, but then I like changed my mind when I realized teachers don't get paid that much. (laughs) um, How much does a psychologist make? Okay, I'll do that. And so I'm in the psychology major, which I love because I love just learning about how we think, how we move. Right. And I was doing research in psychology and I was so bored because the research was on a motor development, but I was really interested in language development, didn't even know it was a thing. And my advisor, I could tell she would get a little frustrated with me and my lack of interest in her study. And she was like, you should just be a speech language pathologist. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And then as soon as she said it, I remember that my freshman year, we had a speech therapist come in and talk to my psychology class, put in my back pocket, was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so I really seriously thought about it. In the research study we were doing on motor development, there was a little girl who, it was like a longitudinal study for toddlers. And there was a little girl and she was like one, but she was using three word sentences. And I was obsessed with her. Turns out her mom was a speech therapist. Also, (laughs) I said, I don't know what you're doing with your child, but I'm mesmerized and I want to learn more about this. So that was really kind of, My opening, I didn't even apply, like, I didn't even know that I was going to be applying to these programs. Like, I was applying to PhD programs in psychology, completely put a hold on that, and started applying to SLP programs. I took an intro course at Georgia State because we didn't have an intro course. And I took that. I was like, 100%, this is what I want to do. Had no idea the demographics of our profession, had no idea of kind of like the technical part. I just knew I wanted to help people and I was so interested in language. And that's really kind of where brought me here. But I think I think the profession chose me. I didn't choose it because for it to be such a perfect fit, I know that was like divinely ordained. Mm-hmm. Oh, Okay, so I was talking to Gerald yesterday, which, folks, that's really technically not coming out to November. So just like pretend you didn't hear me say that, like, I recorded it. And I told him, I have an idea for a caucus. What if we had an SLPs of Faith caucus, right? Where we had different faiths. I get excited in a cold chill. Like, what if we had all these different faiths come together? for the purpose of learning from one another so that we can learn about their holidays, how they honor these, how they celebrate these, the foods, the customs, 
because those are our patients, our students, our clients, mm-hmm. and our colleagues. And not for one is better than another because they're not. Yeah, like, it's not comparison. Yes, but I just, I, because you know what? We, I have sat for 250 episodes we have recorded. And almost every single guest speaker has said the exact same thing. They felt a calling mm-hmm. and that it's just, how freaking cool is that? I, yeah. I totally love that. Yes. Okay. So you, where did you go to grad school then? So got, so <laughs> because I started applying late, I just didn't know that this was going to be a thing. I was like, oh. you know, Phi Beta Cap. I was class president. I had a really high GPA and I was just like, of course, I'm going to get in wherever I want because I'm fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So no. So I got denied to like, I applied to six schools, got denied to four. And the two that I did get into, it happened very late in the game. And so knowing what I know about admissions now, I'm not surprised, but that happened to me. And so that is another reason why I'm so passionate about holistic admissions and DEI. But, you know, anyway, I, (laughs) yeah, so, so didn't know all of that, but I was literally getting denied left and right. I was, I decided to teach abroad in China for a year because I was like, well, if I don't get into grad school, I just need to buy some time. And then it turned out that as soon as I committed to teaching abroad, I got into grad school. And so I ended up going to Indiana University, Bloomington. They let me defer for a year and I got my master's there worked for a while in Atlanta, moved to Houston and worked. And then I started my PhD program back in psychology where it all started. So my PhD is actually in um, psychology with the emphasis in cognition and instruction. Oh my gosh. So what was your dissertation on then? So my dissertation is on therapeutic relationships. So how we're building relationships as school-based SLPs working with culturally and linguistically diverse students. You need to meet Aaron, my co-host, because, oh my God, Aaron's, okay, Aaron, this is for you, honey. Her undergrad is psych from University of Pitt. She got her master's from University of South Carolina. She was my student. This is the whole reason we have the podcast is she, she said, let's do a podcast for early intervention SLPs, blah, 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 expedite research to practice. Here we are. But her primary focus is on relationship building. And she focuses on therapeutic use of self and has all of the advanced trainings for DEI floor time, trauma sensitive and informed. I I always butcher it. I'm sorry, Erin, you think I would know this by now, but (laughs) she wants to go back and get a PhD in psychology to study. Yes. Well, we have to connect. That was so, I, it's shocking that Well, you know, I think what we are required to take that one psychology class, but I was just so, I loved getting my PhD in psychology because I feel like speech is very clinical and I needed something to give me more foundation to the meaning of what we do. And so I felt like I was very hyper-focused on skills, 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 and not But you know, if you don't have this relationship, if you don't build that rapport, if you don't have a strong emotional bond, you're not going to accomplish any skills. Yes. But is that taught within the framework of the big nine? No, it is. But okay. So then wearing my professor hat, wearing my director of clin ed hat, this is the piece that It is absolutely critical. Yes, we have to teach dynamic assessments. We have to teach data collection. However, you will have no data 
to study and analyze if you don't first engage therapeutic use of self, which is honestly, in my opinion, predicated on where are you within yourself and how are you straight, right? Mm -hmm. Like how are you aligned to be ready to help another person on their journey? But Mm. I know. And and I get to teach a whole class on that here at MSU um, Mankato. So I teach a graduate elective. So this is a second year graduate course. It's on, it's called DEI seminar. So the focus is still diversity, equity, and inclusion, but we're focusing really on how to build therapeutic relationships and how to use cultural humility to facilitate those relationships. Because the research is showing that stronger culture, humility, stronger therapeutic relationships. So how do you really build those relationships, especially with your diverse clients, especially when it is more common to have a cultural disconnect between the client and the therapist than not? How do you get through that experience? How do you maintain and build a relationship so that you can have the therapeutic outcomes that you want to have? So we have a whole class on that. It's like, I say that's my favorite, but all my classes are my favorite. So, but it is one of my favorites. <laughs> I am I am making a note to give you a call after the recording because I yes. have yeah. <laughs> yes, I teach it in the fall. It's wonderful. That's amazing. I'm kind of wondering if I can audit that from the distance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can be a guest in our class if you would like to. Oh my goodness, thank you. This is yeah, that. Mm, okay. I have a few ideas. I'm going to hold them. Okay. <laughs> so you're doing this within the framework of your school and you're reaching out to colleagues through journal writing, which is profound, but let's take it back to the core. How do you define diversity, equity, and inclusion as it relates to you and your work? But also what about And y'all, this is not a political statement. This is a statement of facts. I truly feel that DEI is under attack, especially in certain states of our union. Not all states, but certain states. And it should not be. So now the it should not be is my opinion, but it's a very strong held soapbox of an opinion. But it is 100% on attack. And I would venture to say, has always been under attack in this country and throughout the world. So one of the things I posted about this, because I was like, you know, we're saying DEI is under attack, but the terminology is newer terminology. Like people, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer wasn't saying I'm a DEI activist, right? She was a civil rights activist. And so DEI has been a movement where the name might have changed, but this This movement towards justice has always been going on and it has always been under attack. The thing about DEI, I feel like I, in order for me to engage in the work, I have to constantly define what that means because I think the foundation of the attack is under the premise that people don't know what diversity, equity, and inclusion mean. They think it means propaganda. They think it means brainwashing. They think it means anger. Like I have no idea the things I've heard. It it all comes from a lack of understanding of what it is. And also just a, a resistance to talking about things that make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm constantly thinking about, well, what does this mean and how does that directly apply to the work that I do? And I think that as speech language pathologists, it's something that we have to constantly reflect on because we work with people. We work with people. We may work on skills, but we work with people. Mm-hmm. So the diversity piece is kind of the most glaring, which is we want lots of differences and, you know, being able to celebrate across lines of difference, but, and also from an intersectional place. So knowing that you aren't just your race, you aren't just your sexuality, you aren't just your religion, but there is an intersection and you stand there and you have all these different identities, some of them being marginalized and some of them being privileged. So yes, diversity is a celebration of all lines of difference, but can you truly celebrate lines of difference when, if those differences were present, there is exclusion or barriers? So to me, the inclusion and equity pieces are the biggest pieces and really the goal of the work, inclusion being How are people have historically, who has been left out? And if they have been there, has their voice been amplified? Do they have a seat at the table? Do they feel like they belong? Is it a climate of hostility? Is it a climate truly of welcoming people and highlighting their strengths? So that's like the inclusion part. And then the equity piece is where people are constantly confusing that with like equality. We want to give everyone the same rights. No, we don't. We want to give everyone what they need to thrive, whether that's health equity. We want to give everyone what they need to thrive and be a healthy person and enjoy their life or educational equity, whatever that looks like. But it is not the same for every single person because every single person doesn't start at the same place. And then the justice piece, some people add the J to DEIJ. That is the ultimate goal of where if I can't accomplish those things, we're going to have to change the structure. Sometimes structures are too broken to put a Band-Aid on it. And we actually have to shift a structure that is not working. And I think that's the part that really scares people because we're like, well, we've always done it this way. I don't think we can change it. It's, That's the worst that. thing we can say is we've yeah. always done it this way. If we've Literally. always done it that way, then retire and let's do it different. And let's do it differently. So it, it scare, the justice part scares people, but I think the acknowledgement that some structures are so dysfunctional, we have to chip away at it so that we can get to the change. Putting Band-Aids on is not going to work. And sometimes I think diversity is a Band-Aid. Well, We just need more diverse people. Why? So you can harm them mentally because the climate is so hostile so that they enter a space where there are so many barriers that they feel beaten down every single day to where they don't even, you know, have a voice to make a change. Then no, the structure has to change. Mm -hmm. I am trying to find the book and I cannot find, because everything's boxed up. I'm so sorry. But Folks, there's a really good book that I highly recommend, and it is a funny, joyful, and hard read. It's called Abolitionist. Oh my gosh, where? It's on Martina my Latina Love. Um, no. <laughs> Hold on, it's on. It's on my um, Goodreads. It is called. Do you have Goodreads app? I love the Goodreads app. It's I called. Know. I use the website all the time. Uh, yes, it's. 
Amazon's Abolitionist and Activist, A Graphic mm. History of Women's Fights for Their Rights. And it's by Mickey Kendall and illustrated by A. DiMaco. Forgive me. I, that's It's Italian, D with the apostrophe, amico. Aaron would show me how to do this. This cheese Italian. But this book, when she talks about diversity always being under attack, this book takes women's rights and the rights, and, and not white Caucasian women, women and transgender women, all the way back to the beginning of time and analyzes leadership and trials and tribulations that they overcame and succumbed to in their perpetual march forward. Mm-hmm. And it takes heroines like Susan B. Anthony is a heroine of mine, right? But it also talks about the fact that while she was a huge activist for women's right to vote, it was white women's right to vote. She did not act, which I had no knowledge about until I read about this and then went to the Susan B. Anthony house, right? I, I knew one version of the history. We're not told the full version of the history and there's reasons, right? Racist reasons, but they are there. And that book does a really good job of presenting material in a way that allows you to be uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. still fills you with hope for the future, right? And when you think of, when you were describing equity, I have to paint pictures in my heads with the words of the people that I'm learning from because I'm yeah. a very visual learner, <laughs> right? So when I think of equity, folks, I think of, we when she says we all don't start at the same place, right? That's what she said. Think about the patients that we serve that have limb differences, that may require um, adaptive equipment to move around. Are we going to take away their adaptive equipment and then expect them to be equally mobile within the environment? No, because we don't have universal adaptations, which is a whole conversation for another podcast. But I do recommend that everybody listen to that episode on 99% Invisible because it's freaking amazing. But we give people resources so that they can physically engage, right? Mm -hmm. We have that for our patients. Why don't we do that for our colleagues that are of a different ethnic religious background? Mm -hmm. That's how... That's how it processes in my head. Does that that help? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when you encounter that, I mean... How do we move it forward? How do we engage in within our profession anti-racism? Because if we also, I filter this through the framework of my entire academic experience, and I'm the oldest of five. We didn't have a lot of money for college. So I got my associate's degree first. I always knew I wanted to be a speech pathologist. I knew I had to get my master's, but there was not a lot of money. So I did community college, worked a couple jobs, probably too many jobs, did undergrad at Old Dominion University, worked several jobs. I mean, it took me longer to graduate than most, but I had to work to live and then Mm -hmm. worked full time as an SLT while I got my master's degree online because I had, there's no monies. And this is 
how we survived to to make it to that was what was in my family's cards, right? And all of that education, I only had one professor of color, Dr. Norman, who ended up being my colleague, but I still can't call her by her first name because she will always be Dr. Norman. Uh-huh. And, um, and she really just call me Michelle. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I feel disrespectful. <laughs> but like that, but if we look at the world, that's not representative. At all. So how, how do we fight anti-racism? How, what, what do we do? Well, I think one of the things is we have got to shift this conversation of this is not personal. This is not for people who are interested. This is a matter of ethics. And mm-hmm. it blows my mind that we have full conversations about ethics and DEI is not a part of the conversation. Anti-racism is not a part of the conversation. And these are ethical concerns. So if our profession is truly concerned about ethics, the same energy we give to where you have to, you know, you have to be an ethical SLP, you have to do this, then it also needs to, that same energy needs to go towards these issues. And the issues are not happenstance. The issues are not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that you only have one Black or personal color, one Black professor. It is not a coincidence that in 2023, I am the first Black tenure track faculty member in this department. That's not a coincidence. That is structurally, it was meant to be that way. The same way Mm -hmm. that you had to work through school and you and it probably wasn't easy because graduate programs are made for middle to upper class white women who can afford to not work for two to three years to get a master's degree. That it was I mean, I worked full time in the public schools when I was going to grad school. I waited tables on the weekends. I mean, Ruby Tuesdays, you saved my skin. You fed me at night. You, I mean, I was, I put on a lot of weight in grad school, but they had really good turkey cheese sandwiches. Oh, don't get me started on Ruby Tuesdays. Oh my God. <laughs> <Are you still? laughs> okay. We'll have a side conversation on Ruby Tuesdays. Let me order. <laughs> Man, I'm a sucker for the croutons and they literally have the best honey mustard. I will fight over their honey mustard. <laughs> Yes, literally. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, we there's so many barriers. It's not just there's barriers for people of color. There's barriers based on class. There's barriers based on your sexual identity, orientation, you know, your gender identity. I mean, it's just there's so many barriers. And so we can't say, well, we if we really want this profession to look like the world, to look like the people that are sitting in front of us seeking services, then the barriers, the in the exclusion, like there's no way we can't address that. So I thought I knew, I thought I knew how it worked to get into grad school, right? <laughs> and, but like, and I laugh, right? Because like everybody that's listening, you probably knew you had to take the GREs, you had to get good grades, you had to do this, this, and this, right? But that's like outsider looking in. And then I became faculty. And the inside piece of the faculty, the process for reviewing applications, the process for acceptance, 
Those are the things that on this side of the table have to be systematically changed because because they must. Because if we don't make those changes, and I I do want to get into the specifics, y'all, because it's kind of, if you haven't been on this side, it doesn't make sense what happens behind the scenes. It's just like this mysterious application process and you're either in or you're out. But also the simple raising awareness about our profession. I had Lauren Hastings on. Um, And oh, I love her. She is vivacious. When she talks, it's just like, yes. But she and I were talking about it and she said, you know, when you're a black woman in the South, you don't hear about the field of speech pathology unless you know someone because it's not like they show up at job fairs. Yeah. And that's something. So my first call to action, if you are listening to this podcast and you are a member of NISHLA, if you're a faculty member and a NISHLA advisor, if you sit on your state association, if you are a volunteer with your state association, there are built-in systems within those organizations that you can reach out to low-income areas to areas that have high minority status and attend their career days. We can do this. And you can have your volunteers from Nishla. You can have your volunteers from your state association go and have a booth. And those opportunities would just at least put the fields of speech pathology and audiology out. And I think that is... Those are actionable items that could easily be accomplished that I would love to see come to fruition. Absolutely. Right? I'll give you an example. My So in a class that I teach, 541 Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion SLP Education Settings, we are about to, in like two weeks, um, we are, there There are different camps that come to the university under the umbrella of our institutional diversity. So they usually have like a social justice camp, a native camp, an Asian American camp. And they're high schoolers. They come on campus, you know, giving them like the college experience for a short wow. amount of time. And so last year I did a presentation on African-American English with the attendees of the social justice camp. And I said, oh my gosh, what an opportunity to expose our profession to high schoolers, but also to empower the diverse speakers that the way they talk is completely valid and they should show up how they need to show up because their language is a part of their culture. And so this year, as a part of the class, we have created a the graduate students have created a linguistic justice conference, and it's going to be just an hour where we are inviting the students, the high school students of the Asian American camp to come to our building. And we're going to do different topics related to linguistic justice, like being proud of your accent. What are advantages to being bilingual? What is our profession and why do we need more diversity? Why do we need more DEI? And then also we're talking about like communication and justice in the justice system. We're talking about being proud of your accent. Have you experienced discrimination? How to just, you know, overcome that. And so not only are we empowering them based on the knowledge that we have about linguistic diversity, but we're exposing them to the field in an hour, an hour. What if one of those high schoolers leaves and says, 
I have never heard about speech language pathology, but I think I might want to go to college for that. And then what if they go to college for that and then become a clinician or a researcher? And then how many lives are they going to positively impact through therapeutic skill delivery, through advent of new evidence-based approaches, but also the impact that they're going to have within their personal community to represent our profession there? Absolutely. Exponentially, this could be it's about seeds and it doesn't take a lot of time. It takes intention to plant seeds, but it doesn't take a lot of time. This is things we already know. This is things that graduate students already feel comfortable talking about because they've been learning about it. And so, you know, when it comes to like diversifying our field, a lot of it has to do with exposure of our field to people who have been, you know, really excluded or just don't know because they don't have an aunt that was a speech therapist. They don't have a cousin who has their own private practice and they can go shadow someone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had a student who had a cousin who was an OT and that's (laughs) how she found out about speech pathology. And, but I mean, sorry, just that you said that. I was like, yeah, I literally heard that happen, but this is okay. So we can do outreach and it's, it's feasible and it doesn't, those guys, those kind of moments That is one afternoon in the grand scheme of your life that you can tithe of your time. You Mm -hmm. don't necessarily, I mean, maybe you have to get gas. And I mean, normally if you got students there, I'm going to feed the students. So I'll bake (laughs) something for them or like bring them food. I try to avoid pizza because pizza, like everybody brings students pizza. But also I really like to bake. It's like a passion. I have perfected my lemon blueberry cake with layers of fresh um, blueberries and oh, It is. (laughs) I will have to send you a picture because it's really pretty. Because I even curl my lemon rinds. Baking makes my heart happy. Uh, My tummy, not so much, but my heart. Okay. So, can we talk about what it looks like within the acceptance side to programs? Like when students apply to get in, we don't necessarily, we're not taught about the inherent biases of standardized assessments. But when we get into it, there's so many inherent biases of standardized assessments. The ones that come to my mind right off the top are, who are they normed off of? And so normally, like especially with respect to the assessments that we use for our patients, they tend to be upper middle class white males and faculty professors, students, their, their own children. Right. But, and that's not for all of them folks, but like for a good majority of them, but down to the vocabulary that is selected is predominantly standard English. And if you're not exposed to standard English, if you didn't grow up with that, knowing the words in the assessments has an implicit racist bias. So those are factors that come to my mind what are ones that like pop up that you're like oh bing well i mean you know one thing you said we are not taught about the inherent bias we are taught about the inherent bias in standardized assessments 
We are not taught what else do we use because we can't depend on these. Everyone talks about it in grad school, but then there's no solution. Or they say you should do dynamic assessment as if there is not tons of research on dynamic assessment and then actually explicitly teaching what that looks like, what it looks like to go to your place of work and advocate for, no, I'm not using that standard assessment because everybody else here uses it because it doesn't work for my client. I'm actually going to do this and I'm not recording that score and you can't tell me it's mandatory. We don't teach our students to advocate, to do other things other than standardized assessments. So it's not that we don't know. And then also, if you're a person of color, you know by personal experience that standardized assessments are biased. You know that there is bias because you have personally experienced that in your education um, time and time again. So it's like, we know it, but we don't do anything. We don't act. And I think that acting has to be very intentional and very deliberate. And it takes work. It takes work to say, well, if I just gave a standardized test, I would get a score. And then I know that this number means they didn't do good. And this number means they did good. And that just gives me a security versus I'm going to do this language sample and I'm going to actually use the knowledge that I learned in graduate school. And I don't need a standardized assessment to tell me if someone has difficulty learning the language of their community. So mm-hmm. I think we have it. We don't do it. We don't activate it. We don't empower our students to go into their workplace and like hold the line for Mm -hmm. settings where they're like, oh no, everyone uses this one. You can just pull that out the closet. You can do that with everyone. We don't, Mm -hmm. we don't teach them that. So in my clinic class, oh, if a student sat through my clinic class and comes back and says, then I call bumpkiss because I know for a fact that I taught them this. But I also went to the point that we didn't even allow the PLS-5 to be utilized. That was off the shelf because of, I mean, folks, if you're listening, go back. I'm clapping my hands. I'm opinionated. <laughs> go back and read the PLS-5 validity study that ASHA put out probably 10 years, no, nine years ago, because it was between my children being born. This is how I remember the time frame of the test where they talk about how that test doesn't even accurately capture students that do have a disability because it inflates their score one standard deviation, right? So we pulled that. Like that's not, you're not doing that. And guess what? So many school districts love to use the PLS-5 because children don't yeah. follow that. But like, why don't they qualify? Because you've used a test that is like not appropriately validated or normed. So and if you're listening and you're like, oh, well, I only have an hour. Okay. So then in that hour, if you can't transcribe that language sample, let's troubleshoot this. Are you getting consent to film from the caregiver at the start of your evaluation? Because you can film your eval and then go back and transcribe it earlier. Are you sitting down in an early intervention? Are you doing, truly doing the routines-based interview? Because if we're doing the routines-based interview, then we're actually sitting there and deep diving into this family's culture, into this family's being, and finding out where this child's communication, articulation phonological impairment, or their pediatric feeding and swallowing disorder, how it's impacting 
the child accessing their ADLs, their daily routines, and it tells you how to plug in your skill set to engage in caregiver coaching to help this family move forward, right? We have those tools. You just have to think outside of, unfortunately, outside of the box and maybe outside of what you have been taught. Mm-hmm. Which And continue to seek the education. The education is there. I mean, even, you know, I love our multicultural constituency groups like in Basla and you know, Latinx caucus and Asian Pacific Islander caucus for providing very unique, I think the most unique professional development opportunities, but even ASHA has professional development opportunities that teach us to get out of our very like monolingual, you know, box and really think about how are we best serving our CLD um, population in, in regard to assessment and diagnosis. So the information is out there, but I think people are resting on what we have always done and not, you know, saying this is a barrier. This is a problem. Over misdiagnosis is a huge problem in our field. And we have to fully be intentional about disengaging in that. Mm-hmm. Folks, we had in May, we had the Asian, we had two representatives from the Asian Pacific Islander caucus on the podcast. So please go back and check that episode out because when you listen to them, they even offer supports for colleagues that are non-members. So if you have an eval for a child and you don't speak the language that they speak, if you have a referral, if you're unsure of where to start, you can reach out to that organization and they have individuals who tithe of their time to help with teaching you about correct sound production, giving you better insight into the language, what is typical versus potentially delayed or disordered. So uh, they offer that for free, which is amazing. But that is, yes, 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how do we move forward within faculty? Like, do we eliminate the practice? Do we, like, what do we do? I wish we could, right? Um, (laughs) Okay, so I think this would be a good time for me to just explain some of the things I'm doing in my role, and it's not to highlight me at all, but it's just to give example to this is what it looks like to engage in the work. And I will say, you know, when I took when I took this position, I was so excited about it. I was like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. And I have very <laughs> I had a very shallow idea of what the work looked like. So, you know, in my role, if you look up my job description, <laughs> it was like the main two things you are going to teach our diversity, equity, and inclusion courses, and you are going to mentor this diversity and inclusion fellows cohort that we started when I came here. And I was like, I can do those things. I love students. I am a, I was a student of color. And at the time I was in my PhD program. So I am a student of color and I'm so passionate about these courses and I know I can do that, but there is so much more to that. And it is not, it's not easy. So in the teaching portion One of the things that faculty need to do is to seriously decolonize their curriculum and require DEI-specific courses. Yes, you need to infuse diversity, equity, inclusion 
into your curriculum. It cannot just be the one Asian professor, the one Black professor, the one LGBTQIA professor to talk about these things. It does need to be included in the entire curriculum. And you need to have designated, required courses on the undergraduate and the graduate level to talk about these issues. You know, I get a class and I'm like, DEI is such a huge topic. I'm missing things, but I I have a class. Some people don't even get a whole class. So I have a couple of classes. On our curriculum, we added a cultural humility course at the undergraduate level. And then in our our graduate courses, we already had a multicultural issues class and we changed the name to culture responsive practices. And it's broken up into a complete class and a lab portion that's a little more practical. We have a diversity, equity, inclusion class for medical settings and education settings. And then I teach on top of that, I teach an elective graduate course called DEI seminar, where we focus on building therapeutic relationships using cultural humility. So that is a lot. But then not only is it just teaching the content, but really becoming skilled and knowledge, the whole faculty on anti-oppressive pedagogy. So it's not just enough to teach the content, but you have to change the way you are teaching um, the content so that you can meet the needs of this generation of students who is incredibly diverse and does not look anything like what we have seen before. And then we got COVID on top of that. So people need compassion. People need flexibility. People need structures and classes that are inclusive and highly structured and you know all the things. So the teaching is not just the content. It's not just what you teach. It's how you teach. And then when it comes to mentoring students, it can't just be an effort to recruit diverse students. And in our school, you know, our diversity and inclusion fellows is really focusing on racial ethnic diversity because here we are in Minnesota where there is not a lot of racial ethnic diversity at all. (laughs) And so that is an area that we're focusing on. And Not only is the recruitment intentional, but it's the retention that is intentional. And so in my ASHA Leader article, I talk about how we developed a task force because I wanted it to be an organic experience for the students to have a seat at the table to make change in regard to equity issues that actually affect them, but then also to have a built-in community of support, not just with the faculty of color, but also with the other students of color that are in their cohort. So that takes a lot of intention, really thinking about not how are we going to recruit the students, but how are we going to get these students through this program, not by the skin of their teeth, but thrive through this program and be able to enter this profession as an advocate because as a person of color, you have to be an advocate (laughs) in a lot of different ways. And then I guess another thing when it comes to professional education and bringing the community along, hopefully as your department develops in their knowledge of diversity, equity, inclusion, that they are having opportunities where other supervisors in the area, clinical supervisors or other people are really tapping into that knowledge too. Because I think a lot of times higher education entities kind of like hold all the knowledge to themselves. And there are SLPs all in the community that need some of these things too. And so like being a leader 
in wherever you are to provide professional education and opportunities to other organizations. So those are some of the some of the things I think we could start on in regard to in the faculty role, what can we do to kind of activate diversity, equity, and inclusion? I'm thinking back on the things that I didn't know when I went into academia and which is a lot of things on the right. No, there's like a lot, (laughs) but also how to perpetually implementation science, how to do it better, how to do it, how to do more, right? Take what you've done and then reassess. Okay. So folks, if you haven't heard of the term implementation science, Dr. Rebecca Wada was my very first person to teach me about implementation science. Becca got her PhD. Oh, Becca, I'm going to screw this all up. From Utah? Nevada. Nevada. I think it was Nevada. And it was in COMD, but it was implementation sciences. And the short answer is you put a process in place, right? But it's not enough just to put a process in place. As my youngest son, he had a hearing impairment for the first several years. And so we had a lot of speech therapy. So sometimes we get words wrong in regular past tense. Our tick is caught up and fine, but like word selection, I mean, mm. we've been here for a few years. So he always says, make birth instead of give birth. <laughs> But like, you're going to make birth to something, to (laughs) an idea. But when it's out there, you have to systematically go back and reassess as you get new information, how do you make it better, right? So as you're, you're talking about this, I come back to, for those of us that are in a position to teach. That means that we can't use the same syllabus every single semester, every single year, which I have seen. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, "Uh uh-huh. We have to go. We can't use the exact same filmed videos again and again and again. We have to reassess those. And as I say that, I know the immense pressure that faculty is under, but this is what we're charged to do. So go back and reassess. As a department, do you have explicit guidelines for your syllabus that include DEI goals? Do you highlight within that syllabus targeted activities? And do you have a program within your university that you can go to to say, hey, please review this, make it better? Right. Mm-hmm. Those are opportunities. Also, guest speakers. I love guest speakers in my classes. One, yes. one, selfishly, it does give me a minute to come up for air so I don't have to prep for that class. Let's all be honest. We've all had that thought. Sure. But <laughs> two, it is so exciting to me to sit there in my class and watch another colleague light everybody up Mm -hmm. feel that in myself right but when they share their passion so 
if you're faculty and you have the opportunity to have an invited speaker, let's critically analyze who we're inviting. Let's make mm-hmm. sure that when we're sitting and we're seeking out speakers, are they members of, to piggyback on Kendra T. Allison's 8% Summit, are they members of the 8%? And how do we grow this? Because if you have one student in your class who doesn't look like everybody else, let's grow that and fill their cup. Just like you said, you have to reach out. You have to be intentional with retention. So. Mm-hmm. Just some thoughts. What do you think? Am I nuts? <laughs> no, absolutely. The retention piece is huge. The recruitment, yes, there's so many steps to the recruitment, but I think I didn't even fully conceptualize what retention looked like. You know, our first year, even when we have our diversity fellows and I just love all of them. And out of the 15 that we've had, seven have just graduated and eight are in our program now. They are all very different. They have so many different strengths and weaknesses individually, but then also collectively they show up different. I think like The first group, we were just all trying to figure it out together because I'm new. You know, we started this program and it was just a different vibe. The second group, the way they have come together to go to activities together, to study together, the way I've been able to see them grow clinically because they've had even more clinical opportunities than our last cohort has been beautiful. And so, The biggest thing is like everyone needs something different, even within the diversity. Like we are like, you can't just say, oh, they're diverse and try to clump people together. Like every cohort is different. Each of them are different. They have different needs. Their representation needs are different. You know, I'm a black woman and I feel like in our fellows, I have like maybe natural connection to some other Black women. But then like when it comes to maybe an Asian student, I'm constantly thinking about, okay, how do I connect in this way to really think about like their upbringing and their experience that could be different from mine? And like, how am I meeting them where they are? You know, I think about if I say the same message to each student, I'm going to say it differently just because of I know how they respond to me. And so the intricacies of those relationships in order to maintain the retention has to be very intentional. It's not just enough to be like, well, you have this person here and you can mentor across all these lines. You know, I've had to also learn about disability. I've had to learn about things that aren't my experience. Like I'm a cisgender heterosexual woman. So I do need to be intentional about learning about an experience that's not like mine so I can reach my students in every area. And I wish that more professors would do that. Like the reaching and the connection is just as important as the teaching and the skills that you're giving them. Yes. I almost fell out of my seat. I got so excited. Did you know the (laughs) disability caucus? What'd you say? 
Asha has a disability caucus. Yes. I think that's amazing. So if you identify with a disability, if that's part of who you are, they have a caucus. And I will never forget, Brianne, if you're listening, I love you. One of my very dear friends is Brianne and she has a feeding tube and she loves that she has like a a J tube. So she's got like her permanent, but she also does feeding therapy. So the patients that she treats have like the same equipment and she's able to represent them and show them that you can do this and look like us and still thrive, right? And we were at Asha in, wait, where was Asha last year? New Orleans. And she she saw the caucus and oh my God, the stars that hit her eyes was just like, bah! and then she bolted right over to it. But representation matters. And that was mm-hmm. huge. But, oh, I had, a, I had a second thought. It's gone. I got all excited. But yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It matters. And I think, you know, we can, us as faculty, we have to constantly be thinking about our blind spots and mm-hmm. so that we can meet students where they are, you know, and not constantly think about them, but constantly learn. I took like a disability justice course um, a couple weeks ago and I'm really Where? trying to be intentional. Here at our institution, our universe, the state system, they have lots of courses they offer all the time. And most of them are really great. They're online, they're virtual. So there's things out there, but it's like, yeah, do I really want to take a class while I'm teaching four classes? Not really. Not really. But I did it because I'm like, no, this is important. I got to make the time to do this. You know what I mean? And so because divert. It's about intersectional diversity. So while I'm very comfortable talking about race and focusing on racial equity as a Black woman, like I know that people are not just their race. And I know that I could be talking to a Black woman who also has a disability, who is also, you know, a lesbian or, you know, all these different areas of difference. And we have to constantly be thinking about those and think we're self-reflecting on our blind spots so that we can make those genuine connections with the students, but also with our clients, of course. Mm -hmm. It is. When I first started holding these conversations on the podcast, I was 100% uncomfortable the entire time. And this is just me being like totally raw and honest. I worried. Mm -hmm. I have, it has been instilled in me since I was a little girl to mind your manners and to be kind. (laughs) Right. If I didn't say Mr. or Ms. or yes, ma'am, or no, sir, I mean, there was consequences, right? Like mm-hmm. that was how I was raised. And the first time I w- I realized that that upbringing was not how the rest of the world engaged. I was in Arizona. Um, I was I was an invited lecturer to Arsha, and so I was out in Arizona presenting, and a woman came in to present after me and I was cleaning up and she was an older woman, probably late seventies, had a cane. Um, So I am going to do how I was raised. My grandma raised me. I am going to clean it up, set it up, get her set for success. I made sure I was down on eye level. Yes, ma'am. How can I help you? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And she said, if you yes, ma'am, you one more time, you little Southern lady, I'm going to take this cane and bop you with it. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I meant no offense, but like that was... And she goes, we don't ma'am around here. She goes, that means things you don't know. But it was, I didn't even know that I didn't know that there was, I mean, it was just me just trying to be helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When we first started DEI and A, 
interviews, I was 100% uncomfortable the entire time and afraid. Like, I mean, couldn't be, I felt like authentically myself because I was going to fail and say the wrong thing. And mm-hmm. I don't, And Dr. Burns is the one who gave me permission to be uncomfortable. She's like, it's okay to be uncomfortable because yeah. it's not that you have growth. And I was like, okay. But it was scary because it was at the height of the pandemic and we were all living in fear. But I say that because I think, folks, if you're listening, you got to go there. And we got to start. And I am a perpetual lifelong learner. And I don't think anybody will ever be 100% culturally aware on anything unless it's their own personal lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And and so I don't think the end goal should be competency in that because I don't think we can hit competency in that. I think it should be. You don't ever reach that. Yes. I think it should be a perpetual thirst for growth and betterment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, what do you think? Yeah. And that's why I love that, you know, I love the framework of culture, humility over cultural competency, because mm-hmm. it's to a, it's, there is no destination. The journey is a goal, not a destination. Mm-hmm. You know, I think not engaging in a conversation is worse than engaging in a conversation wrong, whatever that means. Because Mm -hmm. when you do something wrong, you know it's wrong because there's going to be a consequence Consequence. and you're going to learn from it as uncomfortable as it is and you're not going to do it again. When we won't even get to a place to talk about things, like the way they are banning D, I don't know how you can ban something that is not tangible. So keep trying. (laughs) But we are going to ban DI. We're going to ban talking about slavery Not talking about slavery does not erase the history of slavery. Not Mm -hmm. talking about racism does not end racism. In fact, racism will never end. It is not about destination. It's about a journey to the destination. Racism will not ever end. But what can we do right now that moves us, that activates anti-racism, that makes us think about how racism is a part of every institution. I can go on and on about all the other, you know, systemic forms of inequity, but I think we're so much on this like ending point. And that's why I love cultural humility. There is no ending point. It is, I am committed. I am committed to keep learning about this for the rest of my life. I am committed to continuously reflect on my biases, to acknowledge my biases, to consider my biases and then acknowledge them on a daily basis. And, you know, it's, it's so much of a journey that you never, you can never possibly learn enough. You could never get to a place where I've done my work. I'm an expert. I don't even like when people are like, oh, DEI expert. I'm like, please don't call me that. I don't even know what that means. That by definition doesn't make sense. You cannot be an expert Mm -hmm. in this work. I have a strong feeling on when people call themselves a feeding and swallowing expert, but they don't have board certification. And at least there's a terminal point for that. But if you don't Mm -hmm. have a certain set of alphabet suit behind your name, you're tiptoeing into the gray in the code of ethics there, if not completely over the line. So Mm -hmm. um, that is. mm, mm. Yeah. 
And I think in our field, you know, I think in our field, we kind of really overemphasize, like, you need a niche and, like, your specialty and, like, what's your... I had a conversation with someone and they were like, what is your... I don't know if they asked me, what is your specialty or something? What is your area or whatever? And I was like, diversity, equity, inclusion. And they were like, no, that's not an area. You know, like, articulation, swallowing, like, what's yours? I'm like, diversity, equity, inclusion. That is my lens for everything that I do. So I'm sorry you don't like my answer, but... Well, I love it. I love it. Also, wait, I am dying. Y'all, y'all can't see this, but this woman above her left shoulder has a slew of books up there. So, oh my God, it goes behind you. Oh, yes. yes. A little curve and. Oh, and are they are they all children's books? Because from they're here, it looks like they're all children's books. They're all children's books. So, I even had like a special delivery. One of the little girls we work with, her name is Maya, and she brought me like these, she's written her own children's books. So she brought them to me and she has like makeup to go with it. And I have her little corner. So I am a book collector. We even started next door to me, there was an empty room. And so we made, we created an equity engagement space. So it's like a library for um, the college to engage and use are diverse books. So I love it. I love it. I need to be in this environment. Like I need to feel it, you know? Mm -hmm. So the books kind of help me. I love that. There's okay. Y'all, if you haven't read it, one of my all time favorite books, and I highly recommend it for our pediatric patients is the girl with big, big feelings. Have you read that? I have not read that. Oh, Oh, get ready. I have to get that. It is such a good book. And my bear has big, big feelings. And he feels, I think it runs in our family. And I know that. Mm-hmm. We feel it. We we feel feel the spirit. We feel the movement. We feel hurt a little deeper, a little, a little more, right? Mm-hmm. And mm, my bear has that big. But trying to process that as an eight-year-old boy, when his reading level is up to seventh grade. So his comprehension is here, but he's still in this tiny little awkward body mm-hmm. where he's, you know, all kneecaps and feet because one day he'll grow into the rest of it. And um, that child grew a full shoe size in nine weeks. He's going through this growth spurt and living off of jars of peanut butter and not a pound on him. But that book really helped us. And because it talks about how to process that. It was with big, big feelings. No, the girl with the big, big worry. Because it's the boy with the big, big feelings and the girl with the big, big worry. But that Hmm. Highly recommend. It'd be a good addition um, to your collection. So. Yes, I have to add that. I just, I love exploring these books. I think the last one, probably my newest one is A Day With No Words that has been quite popular. In I love that. I just like boohooed after finally reading it. It's so beautiful. And I, I, it just made me think of all the children I have worked with that needed that book. And I'm mm-hmm. so grateful that it's out there in the atmosphere right now. Um, it hit New New York Times bestsellers list. Oh, I heard that. I'm yeah. so it should. It yeah. should. Yes. Okay. One, thank you for coming on. Two, I cannot wait to learn more from you. And three, 
at the end of every episode, and I probably should have given you the heads up beforehand, but (laughs) at the end of every episode, we always ask the guest if there's a scholarship, a grant uh, organization that somebody could donate to or tithe their time and talents if they don't have any extra love money lying around. Who, what organization, what, where can we pay it forward to? I just feel moved to shout out uh, the National Black Association of Speech, Language, and Hearing. If I did not go to that conference as a graduate student, I would not be here. I would not have made it. I would have felt completely isolated and felt like this was not the field for me. And so I am so eternally indebted to the the organization. I absolutely love it. And, you know, right now we have a cultural humility conference that we're starting. It's going to be in the fall. I just encourage you, if you want to get involved with Mbazla, if you want to join, if you want to support in any way, please check out the website. Please get involved. You do not have to be a Black person to get involved, to attend the convention. But I'm just so, I just really love this organization. And so much of my time goes into forwarding the the mission of the organization because it's so close to my heart. So I think Um, I would like to just shout that out. I am a member, everybody. So I highly recommend joining The Cultural Humility Virtual Conference is October 14th, 2023, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. They have an open, well, the coffee papers will have concluded by the time we go live. Yes, (laughs) the coffee papers will be over, but you can attend the conference. We also have an ambassador program along with the conference. So the ambassador program is basically kind of like a cohort feel if you want to learn about culture humility in depth. So attending the conference would just be a part of it, but there also be an opportunity to earn 20 CEUs. So you're engaging in asynchronous and um, synchronous work throughout the course of the year. But the conference is going to be six CEUs in October. So please support, please come. It's our first one. We've been working really hard on this. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and um, for doing for your work. Me. Yes. And oh, I'm going to hit stop because I have a few ideas. Okay. <laughs> Feeding Matters guides system wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So, what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. 
Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Thank you.